You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Colin Simpson, an education innovation designer with a background and expertise in education, video and multimedia production, and how technology is used in learning and teaching. In this episode, we find out more about Colin's current PhD research related to higher education workplaces, systems and university culture. Colin explains his approach and methodology informed by social practice theory. That is, understanding what makes up a practice, how that practice evolves and is disseminated, and how this is tied to one's professional identity. We explore a few specific job roles. Academic developers, best represented in the published research in the field. Learning designers, the largest part of the working population and educational technologists, essentially the bridge between IT and teaching. Colin offers clarity on the fuzziness and overlap that often exists within and around these roles as linked to an individual's professional identity. We also explore the shifting dynamics when working within a central team in contrast to closer working relationships within, say, a specific faculty or department. Colin is especially interested in how these potentially liminal roles relate, connect and overlap, offering opportunities for collaboration with others, including academics, educational advisors and institutional leaders. Colin outlines his fundamental research aim of strengthening the contribution and meaningful impact of educational advisors raising pedagogical standards, and improving equitable learning and teaching practice in higher education, with lessons that can be learned across educational sectors. Here's my conversation with Colin Simpson. Hello, Colin. It's very nice to see you. Uh, Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start off by finding out a little bit about your background, maybe what you were interested in when you were younger, and maybe if you did further study, that kind of thing. So, yeah, sure thing. Um, I think very early on, I was actually interested in going into acting. Um, and, you know, sort of came to the end of, you know, I did drama all the way through year 12. Um, and I, I'd sort of dabbled a little bit in media production um, just as a part of that study. Came to the end of year 12, applied to do um, some drama courses at uni and put down media production as a backup, ended up doing media production and sort of minoring in drama, but very quickly realised that the media production side was far more interesting. Now, that happened to be part of a teacher education course at Rusden, the Rusden campus of what was Victoria College, got taken over by Deakin Uni. And I just really, I, I really enjoyed having the exposure to all of the media sort of ideas. A lot of the people who were there were there for the media side, not necessarily to go into teaching. 
I found it really useful having that additional kind of uh, pedagogical sort of exposure, just the ideas around teaching. Because I, I don't know, I, let's just wind back a, a few years now. One of my formative experiences was maybe grade three, grade four. Um, I remember sitting in a class and the teacher was trying to explain cylinders and the kid next to me just wasn't getting it whatsoever. And the teacher was trying to explain it to him and it wasn't getting through. And I piped up and I said, oh, you know, it's like a can of Coke. And that clicked for the kid and the teacher was really happy and he said, you know, pretty good at this you know you could be quite a good teacher and I think it, that 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 concept I there's a little rush that you get when um you know you're teaching and you see that something that you've said or done has an impact on someone uh and I always I, I, I still really I get that to this day I really enjoy that that sensation that you've actually made a difference so I think that probably planted the seed so we whiz forward um did uni, so I went off and I did teaching rounds, um, but, yeah, never sort of followed through to go out and actually be a teacher. I wanted to go into, you know, film video production. So I did that for a little while, sort of freelancing for the most part, did a, did a bit of work with uh, community television, which was just kicking off at that time, so that was really very exciting. Um, and, you know, that's – I – Muddled through that for a while, decided I need a change of life, um, ended up moving to Canberra, um, decided that, you know, I wanted a slightly more stable career. Uh, so I did a um, grad dip of uh, IT software engineering. Uh, I, am, <laughs> I am not a software engineer, it transpires. I am not a programmer. I enjoyed the UX side. I got through enough to be able to, you know, sort of write some basic code, but it was not a thing that um, I was particularly great at. So once I'd done that uh, grad dip, I was sort of looking at job ads and I saw this job at uh, Canberra TAFE, uh, Canberra Institute of Technology, which kind of brought all of those things together. It was, it was somewhere between an education technologist and a learning designer kind of role. And I would describe that as uh, developing learning resources, providing training in the use of education technologies, doing a bit of sort of uh, admin work, you know, sort of clicking buttons and doing whatever else in the learning management system. And all of the other kind of bits and pieces that come in between. So somehow I basically stumbled upon this career that I'd never heard of where I could, you know, bring in the education side of things, bring in the multimedia production, bring in the IT stuff, you know, the World Wide Web wasn't that new at the time. Yeah, <laughs> so so what, what, era? what era? Was that, was, that was uh, 2003 that I started that job. Um, so when, we, when you were saying earlier about the, um, the pedagogical, the learning and teaching elements that the kind of some of the other students were doing in terms of video, what, what were some of the things that kind of held your interest in that regard like that was? Um, I think, I mean, I think it was possibly just how you actually 
structure. I mean, it wasn't so much about how you use video as a teaching tool. They were kind of two separate things. So it was here's how you, you know, do a video production and here's how you do teaching. And, and yeah, it might also include here's how you teach students how to do video. Um, but that wasn't a significant part. The, the teaching component of that degree was very much just, I mean, you know, I wasn't there for that, so I possibly tuned out a bit more than I should have. Um, but going and doing the teaching rounds and, you know, having to prepare classes and deliver classes, that stuff really kind of grabbed me because, um, I mean, in some ways it's, it's a performance. Um, you know, you, you have a plan, you know, you're the, the sage on the stage. That was pretty much the approach back in the day. Um, and, you know, you are responsible for um, bringing knowledge to the surface. So when you fast-forwarding then to, to kind of um, when you started to bring all these, well, are they disparate elements? I guess they're kind of elements, technology. Complementary, I guess. Yeah. So what, what sort of, what's that job role called or what was it called back then? <sighs> Oh, that's yeah. That's that's a reason. That's nineteen years ago. I've had I've had many many titles, and none of the titles really um, sort of um, are the same across the sector. I would broadly say, uh, in the work that we do, there are three main roles with, with many different titles: uh, academic developer who has much more of a pedagogical focus, learning designer, um, largely pedagogical, but um, much more of a tech, you know, sort of basically in between the pedagogy and the technology, and then an educational technologist who definitely has the technological side but understands how to apply it in an educational setting. Um, I... I, I it was TAFE, it was ACT government, so it was probably something like educational support officer or something, you know, very government-y um, at the time. Government-y. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's kind of that, that combination of the, the, that heady blend of learning and teaching, technology, uh, large organisations even, um, they've kind of obviously, as we know, it's grown like exponentially especially recently but um so mm. how long did you stay i guess that did you did you move around a little bit or did you stay in the one spot or how what what was happening um, in the early yeah. 2000s yeah i i look it was it was a great uh it was exactly what i needed so i did stay doing that kind of work um, for 12 years. I taught a couple of uh, subjects at TAFE relating to digital video just to, you know, keep my hand in. Um, went off and did, you know, the Cert for in training and assessment as you need to do. But largely, yeah, we sort of, as the team evolved, um, as we implemented different systems, um, just kind of grew with the team and, and made that modification. In 2015, I decided, yeah, okay, TAFE was good. Uh, it's time to have some new adventures and managed to get work at ANU um, doing, I think I was, I think it was an education innovation officer. 
again, you know, the title's done, which was largely an education technologist providing support and advice in the use of education technologies. Yeah, so moving to university from the tape sector was, was a bigger shift than I'd expected. Um, I was used to having a fairly um, uh, equal relationship with the teachers that I was working with. And university culture is, is significantly different. And I discovered that very quickly. I came in, I was the education innovation officer. I had all of these big ideas about, well, all of these things that we could be doing. And I just smacked headfirst into the wall of um, academic versus professional sort of standing and academic culture and a whole bunch of other things like that. And I get it. Like, universities have been around... Hang on, some of our audience won't get it, though. What do you mean? What does that mean? Sure. Look, universities have been around for a 1,000 years. Um, there is a certain, you know, there is a certain privilege or a certain prestige in being a university lecturer. You're a researcher. You're an expert in your discipline. So you tend to take your peers more seriously than the support staff. Um, whether this is right or wrong, that's, you know, that's a, a wider discussion for us to have at some point. Uh, but I guess that was something, I guess, that surprised me. And as a result, I, you know, because I, I was here, I had, so, you know, I'd been off and done a master's in education in the interim as well. So I had a fairly rich educational uh, background. I was working with people who get to be teachers but don't necessarily have to do any educational training. Now, I'm not saying that these are bad teachers because, you know, you learn on the job and you do all these things as well and you learn from your, you know, your professors and the people that come before you. But I sort of got a bit stuck on the fact that I had this expertise and I didn't feel that it was being recognised, partially because I was a professional staff member. So I, <laughs> I decided I was going to throw my hat in the ring and um, signed up to do a PhD, essentially looking at what are the factors that actually affect the working relationships between uh, these people who I collectively called advisors, education advisors, and academics and institutional leaders. Yeah, just to clarify, because I kind of feel as though there's a, a, a spooky resonance with your, uh, your, your career and mine. It's a lot, lots of similarities. One of the things I didn't realise when I first started working at university is the, the term professional staff versus academic staff. Could you, could you just clarify that for mostly for people in the audience that don't know what that, what that looks like? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so professional staff and academic staff. I, I mean, I'm happy that we're actually using the term professional staff. I've certainly heard uh, people in our space referred to as non-academic staff, which always feels like a bit of a deficit model to me. So professional staff is, is certainly a step up. Broadly speaking, if you're an academic, if you're, if you're in an academic position, you've been through, you've most likely done a PhD and you have a responsibility which is generally 40% of your time is spent teaching, 40% of your time is spent researching and 20% of your time is spent in service. There are, you know, variations within that. So, yeah, 
you are expected, you know, you have your KPIs are essentially your output, a certain amount of research, you'll you know, teach a certain amount of hours. Professional staff don't have those responsibilities, but it also means that they don't get allocated the time to do research. And look, research is fun and research is fantastic. And I get that it's kind of a perk of the job. So, you know, I get that academics can be protective of having time to do research. That's, that's probably how I would define the difference. So in terms of the, yeah, so in terms of the research that I'm doing, I am very interested in why there is this barrier and what the blockers are to um, people in what I call advisor roles, learning designers, education technologists, academic developers and the like, uh, in terms of having sort of meaningful impact in the institution. Uh, and I think there are a lot of those kind of things. So what I'd like to actually, uh, I mean, obviously I'd like to understand what the barriers are. I'd like to understand what the challenges are and look for some strategies and look for some changes that we can recommend to um, create a, a more equitable higher education system and make more effective use of the people doing this work. If I can do that, then I'll feel like this has actually been time well spent. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I want to know what does an ed technologist do? Yeah, okay, I can do this. Um, the first thing to think about is that there is probably a difference between an ed tech working in a central team to those who are working in a, a faculty-based or a college-based team. One of, and this is something that I've certainly learned. So when I was working at ANU, I was a one-man team working in the College of Business and Economics in the education, in the very um, grandiosely named uh, department, the Education Innovation Office. And it was possibly the name of that office that sort of made me think that my responsibilities were a little bit higher than they actually were. I thought, okay, I'm an education innovator. I will come in and help you innovate your education. But ultimately, there was a big piece of that was, okay, how do I set up my Moodle unit? Moodle is a fairly, I'm sure, I assume most people know that Moodle is a learning management system where you put your course resources and your quizzes and your assignments and all of the other business. It's basically the heart of the, the online component of learning and teaching anyway. So, yeah, there's a lot of work around setting up Moodle units. How do I set up a quiz? Um, this thing's broken. How do I, you know, there's a lot of basic uh, sort of button pushing um, work on uh, the use of tools like Turnitin. You know, people, students submit their assignments and then that gets run through Turnitin, which is a plagiarism checker. So there's a lot of kind of nuts and bolts 
stuff about that. And so it was very reactive. People would sort of come to me and say, hey, can you sit with me for half an hour? I need to do this thing. And I did it like six months ago, but I really don't remember what I need to do. And that's fine. And the good thing about having people come to talk to me about technology is that they don't feel um, that it's a bad thing that they don't know about a piece of technology. It is fine. Like people will happily say, oh, I don't know how to use this or that. People have a lot, um, a lot more of a struggle coming to say, hey, I'm not a very good teacher. What, what can we do about that? That's, that's, um, <laughs> that is really not something you meant to do because part of your professional identity is being a good teacher. So, yeah, being the, uh, the tech support guy is great. Now, the thing about being an education technologist is that there's two parts in that name, the technology and the education. We are effectively the bridge between information technology and learning and teaching. So in addition to knowing how the tools work, we know when you should use them, how you should use them. Um, Can you, you give know, us an example of a, of a sort of like a topic or, a, you know, like a something that, what does it look like or what does it sound like in a, in a sort of typical situation? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, okay, so people, I'm, I'm, think, okay, I'm thinking about um, the conventional lecture, say. So there's been a lot of discussion about the value of lectures. There's been a tendency for us to sort of move away from them because it can be a very transmissive kind of didactic approach to learning and teaching. I stand up, I'm the expert, I tell you what you need to know, you fill your brain and off your toddle. Um, obviously, we're in a world now where people are just dealing with information, you know, all day, interacting with it more and more sophisticated ways. So there is an expectation that uh, a learning experience is a bit more engaging. So I had a conversation uh, with one of our lecturers. She was interested in creating more opportunities for students to contribute. Uh, there were quite a few international students. They weren't necessarily, you know, confident in their English. They didn't want to speak up out loud. So we looked at some uh, interactive uh, polling tools. So these allow you to pull out your mobile phone. She puts a, you know, polling question up on the slide and students, you know, respond to the questions. And this can be sort of a, a knowledge checking exercise. It's like, Okay, so based on what we've been talking about, what do you think the answer would be to this question? Um, so it allows them to sort of test their own understanding. It gives the teacher a really good indication, okay, if the students are actually on track or if everyone gets the question wrong, it's kind of like, okay, how about I explain this in a new way? So is, is just those kind of uh, activities. Is it for face-to-face -face lecture or online or for both? Um, this was, this was largely face to face. Yeah. So this was, this was pre COVID. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> there was, yeah, ANU has a very, um, big focus on, um, the student campus, you know, student life experience, all of that kind of stuff. So it was, yeah, the, the online stuff was definitely sort of, uh, complimentary. 
but not the, the primary experience. So with the is there a push and pull? Like who does the lecturer request something that they have seen working somewhere else? Or do you recommend something given their pedagogical or, or kind of learning and teaching need? Or how does it how does that, that sort of flow, which direction or both directions maybe? Yeah, I mean it's definitely a bit of both. Um, one of my responsibilities, I feel, is to be across what's happening uh, in the sector, different parts of the university, you know, education in general. And this is, I think, one of the things that people really miss about people doing this kind of work is that we, you know, live, eat and breathe um, education and technology and we just are paying attention to everything that's going on all of the time. Um, the tricky part can be that, you know, if I see something and think it would be fantastic, but there's no need for it or there's no identified need or no one wants it, it is a really hard battle to say, yes, we should absolutely do this because I think it's cool. So in that situation, it would be up to me to say, think about someone that might find it valuable, have a, a quiet conversation with them and just say, hey, I read this thing the other day and I noticed you were doing this thing in your teaching and I reckon it could be worth having a bit of explore. And sort of making the links and we'll give the links, you know, connect, um, fantastic. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Does, does something come to mind, like a specific technology that, you know, um, that what you're talking about, I mean? Oh. I mean, well, this was probably one of my failed um, examples, and this was actually when I was uh, still back at TAFE. So I got very excited about the idea of digital badges and micro-credentials, and this was probably, I don't know, 2010, give or take. So as soon as that concept sort of, you know, came across my screen, I was like, oh, this is just perfect because the way that TAFE works is you've got, you know, units of competency that are made up of elements of competency. It's very, um, very well defined, very rigorous. I it's, like that aspect of. I like that aspect of. That. I, I, I look. You know, um, I really think that there are some incredible lessons that can be learned from from the, the vocational education and training sector. Mm. So far, In so terms good. Of, what what you're painting a, a very positive picture. So far, so good. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so I thought it was just a perfect match. It was a, a very natural kind of thing, like maybe we could actually start to create digital badges that gave people, you know, digital acknowledgement of their, um, you know, their qualifications. But um, it was perceived as very gimmicky. Um, it was basically just, just a massive uh, uphill push and it never went anywhere. Um, and it's only been in the last year or two that I've actually seen serious discussion of digital badges, micro-credentials in the vet sector. I mean, it's probably been happening. Yeah, it's probably been brewing up for a little while. But, yeah, it's – and I've sort of just been sitting here going, well, you know, you could have listened to me, you know, 12 years ago. <laughs> 
So, yeah, so it, it can be challenging, this kind of work. Um, but sometimes you've got to wait until uh, an organisation or an institution is ready for the idea. So one of the interesting things about working in a, a faculty-based, a college-based team was that you have a lot of very direct interaction with uh, specific teachers, lecturers. Um, they come to you. You build these kind of relationships. And so you kind of see how things are being taught, how technology is being used, how learning is being designed on a, you know, kind of one-to-one -one basis. So as part of that responsibility uh, as a representative of the college, um, I would go off to uh, larger meetings which were held with central team who was responsible for learning and teaching uh, technologies and my counterparts in various uh, other colleges. And I will admit, um, I found some of those meetings, some of those discussions incredibly frustrating because there is a real tension in these institutions. And I get it now. Uh, at the time, maybe not so much, and I was possibly a little uncharitable. But there is the stuff that is needed at scale across the entire institution. So the ownership of the learning management system, what functionality gets added, uh, you know, sort of big picture decisions that affect everyone versus I have seen, you know, a really nice little plug-in for Moodle and wouldn't that be fantastic and why is it taking you guys so long and why are you just pushing back and why won't you do this and why won't you do that? So the relationship that you actually get between these two spaces um, can be fraught and, <laughs> and it also depends on, you know, the... the the politics and the type of the people and they're taking their leadership from, you know, generally senior leaders within the university who may or may not have an understanding of um, technology and enhanced learning and teaching. And so there's a lot of kind of factors at play. So it was really only after I left ANU, um, I decided like, I enjoyed my time in Canberra, but it was time to, to come back home to Melbourne. Uh, and I was working in a central unit uh, at Swinburne and I've sort of subsequently moved on to work in a central unit at Monash. And obviously now I have a much better understanding of what you need to be doing and how you need to be thinking from the central perspective and a lot of that. So I guess the downside of working in a central team is that you really don't have the one-on-one -on -one conversations with teachers but you have a much wider perspective of what is needed in learning and teaching across the entire institution and how you kind of start to address some of these, you know, wicked problems. So, I mean, assessment is, is always sort of fairly, assessment and feedback is always really high on the agenda, uh, which is good because <laughs> those are kind of important things. Um, and, yeah, we need to look at the, how that can actually be addressed. And I guess, I mean, particularly, you know, the, the pandemic just changed everything. So when, when the pandemic hit, obviously we had to shift rapidly from what was largely a face-to-face -face oriented kind of mode of learning and teaching to something that would support 
people who are going to be almost exclusively teaching online. And that probably the biggest part of that was actually dealing with exams. So Monash used to hold face-to-face exams. There'd be like, you know, three or 4,000 students at the Caulfield race course, not on the track, in the in a building. Um, and now suddenly that was not, you know, you cannot put 3,000 students in, a, in an enclosed space. So how do we actually deal with online proctoring of exams? And, and that was a massive issue right across the sector. So, so what did you do? Um, we, we, we muddled through. Uh, we, I mean, a lot of organisations signed up to uh, commercial um, proctoring services where there would be um, a mixture of AI. So, so, you know, students would have to be sitting in front of their webcam There was an AI component, which was, you know, making sure that the students weren't looking around the room too much and they'd had to get their webcams and sort of do like a little scan of the room that they were in. And from a privacy and an equity perspective, it was a nightmare because, you know, it's there's some real challenges with um, expecting, you know, students living in share houses and they don't necessarily have a private space and all these things. So it was, um, uh, anyway, so long story short, Monash bought, uh, built our own sort of uh, customised solution and um, it went, you know, fairly well. I guess it's just that I was going to ask you what's proctoring. Is that It's basically just administering an exam or a, something that's... that's oh. Then yeah, proctoring is is watching. Yeah, proctoring is essentially the the person that you'd have in a physical exam space, just you know, telling people, okay, there's thirty minutes to go. Oh, you broke your pencil. Here's another pencil. Please stop looking at your, you know, the person's exam next to you. Um, just essentially uh, maintaining academic integrity. And you, yeah, you know, it's largely. Some of, some of these systems were kind of promising that they'd, they'd be good solutions, but they weren't, there were limitations maybe to their ability to do the job effectively. And Yeah, I mean, there's, and I think one of the challenges is at the time, particularly in the first year of the pandemic, no one had any sense of, is this going to last for another two months? Is this going to last for another six months? Uh, are we going, will we be able to return to having face-to-face exams? You know, so there's all of this uncertainty sort of floating around exactly what we were going to need to do because the, the landscape was changing by the day. And institutionally, nothing at this scale had ever been done before, um, either, you know, sort of at our institution or, or anywhere effectively. So... Everyone was looking around going, what are you doing? What are you doing? How are you doing that? And vendors were sort of hopping up saying, hey, we've got this amazing silver bullet solution that will be 100% foolproof and solve all of your problems and because that's what they do. And, you know, fortunately we, we had people saying, okay, well, let's just test some of your, your, your assumptions and we've got these specific conditions to address Um and, you know, in the end, it was sort of decided that it would be better to um, build a localised solution. 
You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I'm quite interested in these working relationships that you speak of and the fact that you're doing a formal formal research in this area. What, what are some of the things that you've discovered or that have emerged? Yeah. So it's an interesting space to work in. Um, when I started in 2016, I mean, there's certainly, there has been an undercurrent of research occurring um, in some areas and less so in others. So I mentioned earlier, uh, I feel that there are three main kind of role types. So you've got your education technologists, your learning designers, and your academic developers. I would say the academic developers are probably best represented in the research that's been going on, partially because there's a tendency more for them to actually be in academic roles. There is a there's the International Journal of Academic Development. They're you know they're they're relatively well established. The learning designers, that's probably the largest part of the population of the people doing this kind of work. So they do tend to pop up reasonably frequently, but there probably hasn't been the depth um, in terms of looking at how these people are doing their work. And then the poor old education technologists, being tech support guys, being professional staff, very underrepresented in, in this space. There's a couple of interesting studies that have been done um, looking particularly at, okay, well, what skills and what knowledge areas do you need to be good at this? Uh, and they've been incredibly helpful. But large, by and large, those roles, yeah, been a lot harder for me to sort of find information. So, I mean, obviously, I started out having a look at the existing research. What have people already been doing? What are they finding? And for me, people were only ever researching one of these role types at a time. But I feel that there is a real value in looking at how we kind of work collectively, uh, which is why we sort of coined this word. And I don't know if I'll stick with it, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a working title for now of advisor, education advisor, because it, it is at the heart of what we all kind of do. So... One of the things that I think is, is useful in the research that I'm doing is that I'm really interested in the relationships between these role types as much as I am between um, what advisors and academics, uh, you know, how advisors and academics relate and how advisors and institutional leaders are relating. And that actually forms a really interesting triangle in itself because... We, you know, sort of academics don't always necessarily get along with institutional leadership. Um, they may feel that um, they're getting in the way or they're taking a very, you know, sort of neoliberal corporate kind of approach to um, how universities should be run. Um, people may have some experience of that. Oh, <laughs> not feeling a, that leadership in <laughs> Quite a vexed issue, as I understand, Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, probably I need to go into a lot of detail, but yeah, so suffice to say there are some tensions within the sector. Now, as advisors, we 
feel that, you know, our primary role is to support good learning and teaching practice. So, you know, that is the basis of our relationship with academics. But we have a secondary relationship with leadership who have institutional priorities and those institutional priorities are largely, you know, uh, educationally focused and it's about raising pedagogical standards and everything else within the institution. But there are things that you need to do to run an organisation and, you know, if the money's not coming in, if we're not, you know, addressing privacy laws and copyright and all of the other bits and pieces that are needed to, to run a big institution, um, there will be no learning and teaching going on because, you know, the institution can't function. So advisors are sort of in this, you know, tug of war between these two bodies. And sometimes we're seen as agents of managerialism or, you know, we're working for the man or, you know, doing whatever. So dealing with this kind of tension has been one of the most interesting um, aspects of sort of the research. And I really don't have any answers on that yet. Um, I'm still uh, in the process of collecting data. So I feel like this is going to come out in interviews. Uh, in the research that I'm doing, I'm only speaking to advisors because, you know, it would just be massive. It would just be way too big a piece of work to do uh, with that. Um, so I've always been kind of conscious of that as, as a big part of this work. Uh, obviously, the professional acad academic divide, um, that is a massive part of uh, culture in higher education. Um, now, what's been interesting there is that in the data that I've collected so far, it doesn't seem to be as big a deal as some of the other things that are going on. So one of the things that I found really interesting is that the relationships between advisors in different roles, so the relationships between academic developers and learning designers, learning designers and ed techs, they possibly have more sort of impact on how we're actually, you know, collaboratively working to improve learning and teaching. So I kind of, um, one of, I mean, I'm, I'm drawing on uh, practice theory. So which practice theory is essentially, uh, <laughs> I'm going to butcher this and my supervisor is going to be incredibly frustrated at me. Um, my take on practice theory or social practice theory is essentially understanding um, what makes up a practice and then how that practice gets, how it evolves, how it gets disseminated. Um, and I, I think there's also something in how we tie practice to identity. So if you do a thing, then you are that person. And your practice is kind of made up of, the, the material parts, the tools that you need to do it, it's made up of the knowledge and it's made up of the, the rules and the, the norms, the conventions that go around that practice. So my feeling is that there are probably practices that some of these advisors do that others don't. There's absolutely a bunch of overlap. I mean, all of us do training, um, you know, we sort of all... Uh, provide advice in different capacities. So there's a lot of that kind of going on. And that is a significant part of why there is uh, a cloudiness around 
who advisors are and what they do and what they're for. I think one of our biggest challenges in terms of having impact is that people go, who are you? What are you for? What are you about? Now, that's changed in the last couple of years because people have been forced to go online who, you know, there was always a cohort of, of teachers who were very keen to use the technology and, you know, um, do all of those things. And so they kind of had some sense of, of the support services that were out there. But then there were a big chunk who really just did it under protest and did the bare minimum for, you know, as long as they could get away with. But bang, COVID comes along and it's like, yeah, okay, I, I probably actually do need to understand the LMS a little bit better and understand good, you know, um, online communication, collaboration, all of that kind of stuff. Um, totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> It was going so well. I guess you're painting, uh, you're painting a picture of a reasonably complex business system or a human system, really, with a lot of moving parts. And so, I guess, what are you, what are you hoping to unearth, maybe, if that's the right word? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess what I want to do is to have a mark. I mean, yeah, so I mentioned that there's a cloudiness around these different roles, and I think that the activities, the practices that people in those different roles actually perform are strongly linked to their identity. So one of the things I'm very keen on, and I don't think there is ever going to be a hard definition for any of these roles because I think it's actually valuable having that kind of fuzziness around the outside because it gives you a little bit more freedom to move. But it would be useful to be able to say, well, your education technologist does spend a lot of time looking at, you know, how you evaluate a piece of technology and you implement that. And so if that can become kind of common knowledge, then hopefully we can put you know, communications strategies or systems or something in place whereby even academic is like, oh, what could I use to do, you know, what could I use to um, facilitate group activities? I will go and talk to the education technologists because they have some ideas. So that, that's kind of one of the things, that, one of the outcomes I really like is just getting some clarity around those incredibly liminal kind of, you know, messy kind of roles. Getting leadership to understand what kind of level of expertise they actually have in the staff who are working for them. And, you know, I would love it if we had more of a seat at the table at, you know, kind of the big picture strategic kind of discussions earlier in the process. Now, is that going to happen who knows? Um, but I feel like, you know, if you don't ask, then you don't get. So is part of your, is it, a, is it an assumption or is it a, have you gone into the research process understanding that there's, there isn't that seat at the table generally or, or is that something that you're further uncovering or both uh, maybe? Yeah, and look. That's, that's true. That is 100% true. It isn't. It? Well, it's an assumption, but it's kind of common knowledge. Do we have evidence for that? 
That is, yeah. Um, that that is definitely one of the things that I'm planning on pulling out of the interviews. Uh, um, so I, I personally don't. Um, and yeah, like it is, it's anecdotal. Um, Can you explain what that means? Yeah, sorry, by anecdata, it's, you know, it's not quite data, it's much more anecdotes. So just individual stories. So what's wrong so with an anecdote? Everyone's got an anecdote. <laughs> what's wrong with that? There's nothing at all wrong with an anecdote. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're looking at sort of yeah, evidence-based the rigorous kind of research practice, the kind of stuff that gets taken seriously by people who understand research, then they do expect, well, they do expect a little bit more than stories. Now, I'll qualify that by saying, you know, qualitative data, qualitative research is incredibly important and it is an important way of understanding something beyond, you know, uh, straight-up facts and figures um, so you need a, a combination of both. So I guess ultimately what I really want out of this is to make, it's, it's all about making learning and teaching better. And the reason that I've been doing this is that we have a pool of incredibly talented, knowledgeable, experienced people who live and breathe learning and teaching, working in these institutions. And for a range of reasons, they're not having the impact that they should be. And I am going to fix that. <laughs> My plan is to upend a thousand years of higher education culture and um, just change everything. So, <laughs> um, or, you know, more realistically, um, I think that it would be great if we can establish advisory, it is a terrible word. I think we can eventually we'll find a better term. But you mean ed ed educational advising? That yes, yeah. yeah. If we can establish this as a field or a discipline with some credibility and one which um, is able to have more impact. The thing that I really like about this field is that people come into it from many different directions. There are, an, um, you know, there's a growing number of formal qualifications that you can do, but more often than not, people will actually, you know, they'll start off as a teacher or they'll start off as an IT person or they might start off as a, a media producer or whatever. And somehow we find our way into this space and the space works and it's a fantastic job and you get to challenge yourself and it would just be fantastic if we can actually um, be used to our full capacity. In this episode, I chatted with Colin Simpson, an education innovation designer. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including links to Colin's blog, Screenface, Better Teaching Through Technology, details about his PhD activities, and his role in a special interest group for Ascolite, the Australasian Society for Computers in Learning in Tertiary Education. 
Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.